last week we looked at the fact that uh, God has ordained, is ordaining, and they're doing a series of sacrifices, Moses on their behalf, over eight, over seven days, and at the seventh day, it concludes, and the eighth day they begin the sacrifices where Aaron now is leading out as the high priest doing the sacrifices. And somewhere on the eighth day or shortly after, things go really bad, really fast. Hence the title this morning is Strange, not Strange Fire, but Playing with Fire. Playing with fire. I don't know if uh, you've ever played with fire. I, I, I distinctly remember as a young, a young lad uh, being, I don't exactly remember my age, but I remember visiting some cousins that were camping and they had a little campfire and we were, we were there and this fire's burning. And I remember seeing the logs in the fire and I remember seeing the glow of the hot embers underneath one of the logs. And it wasn't like the flames were going necessarily, it was just, but it was red hot. And I remember seeing that in just... You know, I know not to tot, touch hot things and fire, but this wasn't fire. It's just a glowing red part of the log or kind of orange. And it just looked like velvety. And, what, and I just thought, man, I'm kind of poking it with a stick. And it's just kind of really interesting. I thought, I got to touch that. Let me just see. And I remember putting my finger on that. And really quickly, I realized that is a bad decision, a really bad decision. And pulled my finger off and, you know, I had to put it in water and ice. And I had a pretty good burn on my finger. And um, it, was, it was intense. It was intense. And at that moment, I realized, wow, you, you again, the reminder, I, I, the, the, the words of my parents, you don't play with fire. What are you doing? You know better than that. Don't play with fire. And how is it, how is it that all of us, you know, we, we know that. But why is it, why are we so self willed, self-determined to figure things out our own way. Well, I'll do that. Now, maybe you're not as dumb as me to put your finger on a hot log. Uh, maybe you have other more creative, uh, interesting ways of, of playing with fire. But uh, we all find ways to do that. We all find ways to try to figure things out ourselves, try things out our own way. And then for that matter, uh, we fast forward to the day we live in right now in the society we live in where there is such radical individualism and and each one of us is determining our own path to god our own belief system our own identity who we are is to be determined by ourselves and are we 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 are we are educated through media and through music and through all of the influencers of culture and even our education systems everything is pushing back at us and going hey you don't listen to any authorities, don't listen to any outside influence, don't listen to anybody who tells you you can't be who you want to be. You determine your own reality. You determine your own religious preference. You determine your own sexual preference. You return your own intellectual preference. You determine your own whatever. You can figure out your own path. Don't let anybody else tell you any different. And the question is, is that really a healthy thing to do? I mean, is that really a good thing for society? And in the, in the attempt to be loving and tolerant of all people to choose their own paths, you know, we will willingly allow people to walk off a cliff into destruction and uh, go down paths that we know are not going to be healthy and best for them. And we'll call that tolerance and love. And I would argue that is not love. Not love. And so God in this passage is going to respond to the expressed individuality of two of the sons of Aaron. Aaron's two oldest sons, um, Nadab and Abihu. Nadab and Abihu. He is going to 
he is going to judge them for doing something that, that I'm going to warn you at first glance, you're going to look at it and you're going to be a little shocked that God would be so mean and quick in anger that he would so harshly judge these two sons of Aaron who have been involved in the ordination of the priests for seven days. They've been in the tabernacle, they've done everything they're supposed to do. And here on the eighth day, uh, they kind of take things in their own hand, try to do kind of little creative worship, and God judges them for that. How harsh God would be. It, it, it offends, and this is true of the Bible in general. The Bible offends the sensible, the sensible the sensibilities um, of, of our liberal mindsets. The liberal mindsets of society, liberal views of reality that, that permeates all of society. The liberal worldviews that we have been fed and we're reminded of constantly. This is the way we should be open-minded thinkers. This kind of God that responds this way is just an incredible offense in our society. The question is, do we step back from God and go, well, I, you know, I don't know that I like this God. I, I don't think I like this God. That's what a lot of Christians have done. And so what they do is they just chop the Bible in half. And they go, well, that's the Old Testament God. Mean, grumpy, quick to anger, harsh, judgmental. But then he becomes gracious and nice with Jesus and the cross and all that stuff. And then he's like nice, kind, nurturing, gracious, lets people get away with whatever because he just loves everybody. Everything's wonderful and everything's so kind of mean, harsh, judgmental, Old Testament, wrathful, New Testament after Jesus, loving, kind, unifying, peaceful, gentle, wonderful. And don't forget the rest of the Bible. First of all, in the early church, God strikes down Ananias and Sapphira because they cheated on their offering. They said, okay, we're going to sell some property and give 100% to God. And then they thought, you know, we made a good bit of money. Let's just give half of that. And they had already made a vow. And they back down. They walk in with half the money, and God strikes them dead. And you go, well, that was a little harsh. Fast forward to Jesus. He's going to return one day. I don't know if you believe that. I hope you believe that. And when he comes back, there's going to be a big battle. And it's going to be so severe and so harsh that Jesus will slaughter slaughter the armies that come in opposition to him to the extent that the blood of those who are in opposition to Christ and his kingdom and his rule and reign when he establishes on the earth is set in revelation that it's going to rise up to the bridles of the horses. It's going to be up to the mouths of the horses, the blood in the field there. It's going to be a grueling, bloody, harsh battle as God righteously judges those in opposition to him and his kingdom. God does not change. It's what we call the immutability of God. God is immutable and he changes not. God's not fickle. God's not grumpy. God doesn't change his mind each week. God is who he is and who he always has been. And one of the most important attributes of God is his holiness. And this passage is one of the clearest displays of that. So turn with me to Exodus, I'm sorry, Leviticus chapter 10, and let's look at the passage. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it. So the censer is like a little pan 
And um, if you uh, have ever been antiquing or, you know, you've been at any of the older houses in this area, um, Civil War houses or been to some of the different um, plantations and different things in, in, in this area, um, historical homes, one of the things, if you study, look at the fireplaces, how they do things, they would build a fire and then they would have a hot pan and they would put the coals in it and they would cover it and they would go to another bedroom and open it up and they would put that in the next fire and it was really easy way to put a fire in each room instead of having to build a fire from scratch every time you went from a room to room and so that's all they're doing they're taking a little metal pan they're they're making a fire and they're closing it and so they laid incense on it evidently incense of their own making and they offered unauthorized fire before god they offered unauthorized fire before God. Some of your translations might say strange fire, strange fire, foreign fire, which had not, he had not, God had not commanded, Moses had not commanded them. And fire came out before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And and Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphon, the sons of Uziel, Uziel, the, the uncle of Aaron, so some of the cousins, and said to them, come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats, their priestly garments, in other words, out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, his other sons, do not let the hair of your heads hang loose and do not tear your clothes, lest you die and wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. Do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting lest you die. For the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. And the Lord spoke to Aaron saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you and your sons with you. When you go into the tent of meeting lest you die, it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common. And between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. Moses spoke to Aaron and to Eleazar and to Ithamar, his surviving sons. You shall eat, eat it in the holy place because it is your due and your sons due. This is the grain offering. They're supposed to take the grain offering and they're supposed to eat it in the holy place as prescribed in the grain offering in the previous chapters of Leviticus. Uh, from the Lord's food, so for so I have uh, I am commanded. But the breast that is waved and the thigh is that is contributed, you shall eat in the clean place. You and your sons and your daughters with you, for they are given as your due and your sons due from the sacrifices of the peace offerings of the people of Israel. The thigh that is contributed, the breast that is waved, they shall bring with the food offering of the fat pieces and wave for the for the wave offering before the Lord and it shall be yours and your sons with you as do forever as the Lord has commanded 
I'll cover the rest of it here in a minute. So what is going on here? Verse 1, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their censers, put fire in it, incense in it, and they went before the Lord, and they offered unauthorized strange fire before the Lord. So several things to note here. Number one, they brought the wrong instruments. They did not bring um, instruments set apart for the worship of God that had been anointed. One of the things, if you notice in the previous chapter, if you look back to Leviticus 8 and 9, Moses actually anoints all of the temple utensils to be used for worship and service to God. And this says that they took, he took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it. So he got something that didn't belong, wasn't anointed by God, set apart to be used for the worship of God, gets his own censer. Well, I'll just use my own. Takes it, mixes his own incense, gets his own fire, not fire off of the brazen altar that has been sanctified by blood, that has been accepted by God's fire as it came out from the tabernacle, consumes the altar, and God sets fire to the altar. He doesn't take that fire off the altar that it's been sanctified and purified and then put it with the prescribed specific recipe for the incense. But he goes and gets his own incense, his own pan, his own fire, puts them together. So number one, you have, uh, first you have the wrong people. I'll come back to that. You have the wrong instruments. And second, thirdly, you have the wrong fire. You have the wrong fire. They might, this might be called strange fire. It was not offered in a manner prescribed by the Lord. Just as in Exodus 30, verse 9, incense not prepared according to the direction of God is called strange incense. So in Exodus 30, verse 9, same reference used to talk about incense. It says, don't bring any strange incense. And in the same way, this is called strange fire. Not prepared in the way that God had prescribed. And because of that, judgment falls upon them. And then if you look at the, um, the fourth thought there, the wrong time, it wasn't a time prescribed to bring the, all, the incense. They weren't qualified, and they were not um, given the authority to do that, and they came at the wrong time. They just came when they wanted, hey, let's just do an offering. This is a good time. We've got a little downtime. Let's make an offering. Let's get our own pan, our own fire, our own incense at our own time and take it to God. And then they did it not being commanded to do it. They did it with the wrong authority. It's easy for us to overestimate sometimes our authority and our value. We, we think that we are more valuable and uh, we think that God is uh, just really impressed with us and he's really, God is really blessed to have us on his team and so surely he would want us to do things our way because, I mean, we're so amazing and we're so great and we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he falls. The moment that we start getting kind of uh, a little bit of a swagger in our step, a little cockiness, a little arrogance a little a little pride and start thinking that yeah we're really we're doing pretty good and it's not the abundant grace of god that has given us everything that we have has blessed us with the positions and the authorities and the power and the money or the lack of money or the influence or the lack of it whatever we have whatever we have the little bit or the lot that we have whatever we have is, is a gift from god the breath that we breathe every moment is a gift from god and the moment that we think that we deserve any of that take heed lest you fall but then also understand that much, to whom much is given, much is required. But then I want to go back to that first point, the wrong people. Only Aaron the high priest was to offer the incense at this point, and they did it on their own. Exodus chapter 24, if you go back a couple chapters, the end of Exodus, verse 1 through 11, it says, Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 of the elders 
of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near. The people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and the rules. And all the people answered with one voice. And they said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They say in one confession. Moses wrote down the words of God, of the Lord. He rose early in the morning, built an altar, offered uh, at the foot of the mountain, 12 pillars, according to each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And he set young men of the people of Israel he, uh, who sent young men of the people of Israel who had offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood, put it in the basins, half of it he threw against the, the side of these altars that he made at the base of the mountain, not this altar yet. And he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of all the people. And so at the beginning of that, verse 1, it says, Moses comes to the Lord with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 elders of the nation. Nadab and Abihu, they've been there from the beginning. This is not something that they just, they haven't been privy to this information. They didn't know what they're supposed to do, not supposed to do. They knew to reverence Moses. They knew to submit to and reverence their father. They knew that the high priest and his garments has been set apart for a unique role of which they are not to step into. And yet they were arrogantly thinking that they can serve in the same way that their father did without being commanded to do that. And so... We're told again in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 through 29. It's a great cross-reference in the New Testament. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. What, is, what does that mean, that our God is a consuming fire? It means that uh, it's from the, the word in the Old Testament. It's Jehovah uh, Quana, that God is a jealous God, that God is like a jealous fire. Fire is not partial. It wants to consume everything that it can consume, right? Fire is not like, I'd like to consume this, but I'm going to neglect this. I mean, fi- fire consumes everything combustible and that could be burned. It's going to consume it. It's jealous. It can't be confined and controlled. It's going to just take off and it's going to burn unless it's in a certain context and, and God in that way. Not defined, cannot be put in a box. It, he is a jealous God, and he will not share his glory with others. And again, you say, well, I, I thought that 1 Corinthians 13 says God that, that love is not jealous, and God is love. So how can God be all-loving and yet jealous at the same time? Well, the reality is when we're jealous, it's an issue of control. It's an issue of trust or lack of trust it's an issue of doubt it's an issue of a lot of different things it's an issue of idolatry it's an issue of pride with god none of those things factor in his love for his glory and for his creation is pure there's no defilement there's no pride there's no overstep there's no control there's no it's all uh from a pure righteous judgment and a righteous perspective so when god's love is expressed in a jealous jealousy that god is an all-consuming fire we understand that 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 god is passionate about his glory his holiness and he will not share that with others nor can he in his nature tolerate the violation of it he has to deal with sin he has to deal with sin we're going to send that a little more in the next couple moments give you uh two more thoughts as we go through this passage if you look at verse four we understand um, Aaron's sadness 
his sadness. Moses responds to Aaron in verse three. This is what uh, the Lord's what the Lord has said among those whom are near to me. I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. What, what he's saying here, what he's acknowledging, if we could just put this in simple terms, is that the closer one is to God, the closer you are to God, the greater you need to pay attention to holiness, issue of holiness, and of God's glory. In fact, let me put it another way, simplified even more. The closer you are to God, the higher the expectations are in the uh the greater blessing and opportunity, but the greater danger that you're in. Jesus said it this way. He did a bunch of miracles in, uh, in northern Israel among Jewish people in the beginning of his ministry, and they rejected him. They were, they, many of them refused to receive Jesus. And, and Jesus said these words. He said, if the miracles that were done in your midst were done in Tyre and Sidon, which is in the north, uh, north of Israel and is a Gentile, non-Jewish communities up there, he said, if I went up there and I did these same miracles up there, they would repent and believe what, what I'm saying. They, they would be receptive, but you're rejecting it, and yet you've had the prophets and the priests and the ministry of the temple, and you've had God's word. You've had so much given to you, and yet you don't get it. I tell you, it's going to be worse for you on the judgment day, then it will be for Sodom and Gomorrah. So what he's saying is that some parts of hell are going to be hotter than other parts. Now, both parts, to, to reject Christ and to spend eternity in hell is not good. It's bad. That's to be under the judgment or wrath of God for eternity. Okay, ever burning fire. That is a scary thing. But he's saying it's even worse to go there having known the things you've known. Let me put it another way. It's more dangerous for us to go to hell from the Bible Belt, growing up in a Christian family or community where there's still some freedom and openness to Jesus than it would be to die and go to hell from from uh, northern India, if you will, where maybe they've never heard of the gospel. In their generation. They are without excuse in the same way we would be without excuse if we have not trusted in Christ. That's a conversation for another day. We can talk about that if that bothers you. There's some scripture behind that. Just read Romans 1. But it will be worse for those who have had reoccurring, abundant exposure to the truth of Christ. You better take serious what God's word says and make sure that you have wrestled with these truths and you have worked out your salvation with fear and trembling, that you're making sure that you've nailed down, you understand whether there is repentance and faith and clarity in your heart, that you have saving faith, not that you're just checking a box in ritualism. Make sure that you've nailed those things down because there's a danger in there. And Moses says, uh, among those who are near to me, I will be sanctified. And before all, I will be glorified. He, he says in Leviticus chapter 27, the end, and then in Deuteronomy 28, the end of those two books, he gives them twice reminders. He says, I'm setting before you blessings and curses. So here's the flip side of that. You know, the nation of Israel they were the apple of God's eye. They were offered blessings beyond comprehension. God said, I will bless you in amazing, but I'm going to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, with wells you didn't dig and houses you didn't build. I'm going to give you an inheritance that you don't even have. I'm going to bless you beyond your comprehension. All you have to do is obey me. Just obey me. Just obey. That's it. But if you don't obey me, you're not going to have the blessings. You're going to have the cursings and you're going to be cursed and you will have 
abundant judgment and sorrow in your life and in your generations that follow you. I have set before you life and I have set before you death, Moses said. Choose life that you can live. And so Israel, you said, why would he judge Nadab and Abihu so harshly? Because he had blessed them so immensely. They had they were closer to God than anybody else in the nation as far as proximity. They could come closer to the presence of God. All they had to do was just obey the rules that they have been abundantly clearly prescribed for them, and they violated that. And so the judgment was more harsh because of the opportunity and the proximity, the closeness that they had uh, to God. And so Aaron's sadness when confronted with the death of his sons. How does Aaron respond? Well, Moses tells him and his sons not to grieve. He says, look, don't don't tear your garments like people normally would in mourning back then. Don't throw dust and ashes. Don't dishevel your hair. It just it was the way of expressing on the outside. Sometimes we don't do a good job mourning because we just oppress it. We don't give people the freedom to really be sad. And um, they they were they would even hire mourners sometimes to come join him and help him cry out loud. And so uh, he's saying, no, no, don't don't get fired up and start displaying your grief and your because that, that's almost implying that maybe there's something wrong here and there's nothing wrong here. So when, when people die, it's it's a separation. We have we lose loved ones and it's not natural and it's a break and it's difficult because God has created us to have relationships and to live in relationship. And when we lose someone close to us, we naturally are going to grieve because naturally the way God made the world, there was to be no death. And death and grief is a sign of the fall. And it is a consequence of sin being part of the world we live in and us being born with sinful natures. And so death is is never to be easy. It's supposed to be. um, It will always be difficult because it's not natural. It's not God's, the way that God intended for things to go. But because we have rejected him, we feel the consequences of that. But as believers, we grieve, but not without hope. But in Aaron's situation, he was not permitted to grieve because Nadab and Abihu did not die as a consequence of sinful natures living in a fallen world. Nadab and Abihu died because of the consequence of them disobeying the direct commands of God. And God was 100% completely just and righteous in instantaneously judging their sin. And so there was to be... There was to be no punishment. I mean, they were not to grieve as if... This isn't the way it's supposed to be because God rightly judged their sin. And so Aaron was to not be sad. His grief was not permitted because of the role he was fulfilling and his acknowledgement that Nadab and Abihu's sin was deserving of swift, righteous judgment of holy God. The second thought there under Aaron is uh, Aaron's sadness. Uh, secondly, we see Aaron's sincerity. And this is the, the end of the passage. And a couple thoughts on holiness and we're done. Here's, let me just say this briefly. Uh, verse 16, he, uh, Moses diligently inquired about the goat of the sin offering. And behold, it was uh, burned up. And he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar and the, survive, the surviving sons of Aaron, saying, why have you not eaten the sin offering in the place of the sanctuary. It's been commanded. You're supposed to eat this portion. You didn't eat this portion. Why did you not eat this portion? Why are you not taking serious God's commands? Verse 18. Behold, its blood was not brought into the inner part of the sanctuary. You certainly ought to have eaten it in the sanctuary as I commanded you. And Aaron said to Moses. This is Aaron's response. Behold, today they have offered their sin offerings and their burnt offerings before the Lord. And yet such things as these have happened to me 
if I had eaten the sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? And when Moses heard that, he approved. What's going on there? What, what is the deal? Well, what Moses is saying is, um, appears that he disobeys God. And Moses is judging Aaron harshly because of his disobedience. And so Nadab and Abihu have disobeyed God, struck dead instantly. Now here we have Aaron seemingly disobeying God. But God graciously allows and extends, he is extending grace to Aaron in this moment. Why would he, would he harshly judge Nadab and Abihu? Why would he be so gracious with Aaron in this moment? It's an odd contrast. So why did God judge the sin of the sons harshly, extend grace to Aaron? Well, verse 19, Aaron implies that his heart was not right and he chose to fast. He decides not, he's not um, disobeying so much as he's just not, he's not completely consuming. He's not consuming and eating it, which was part of the offering. And he's choosing to fast, which was, wasn't a disobedience. There's plenty of fasting in the Old Testament. But he would chose to fast rather than to go through the motions of the sacrifice with an insincere heart. In other words, Moses going, man, I, I'm, I'm struggling with the events of the day. And I know God is righteous and judge and whatever. And I, but I don't feel like I need to consume. I am not sanctified in this moment and um, consuming this. Uh, I am not in a position in this moment to consume this with the right heart. And so I'm going to abstain from this part. And Moses hears that and God and extends grace. God is, one side we look at God, we're saying he's so harsh and mean. And the other side we say, man, he's so abundantly gracious. Why, what is this? We have such a gracious God. I, I think the key here for us to note is whether from a mistake or an act of reverence, humility and humility, sensing his heart, not right, to partake in the offering, God is more gracious to those who make mistakes from a broken and contrite heart rather than for those who carelessly, arrogantly enter, attempt to enter his presence with arrogance and pride and self-will. Understand, the only thing that survives in the presence of God is humility. Moses, or Aaron, despite not fulfilling the complete offering as prescribed, was not judged harshly by God because he came with a broken and contrite submissive heart to holy God. Nadab and Abihu, by contrast, were harshly judged because they arrogantly trotted into the holy place of God as if they can come there on their own self-will, when they want, how they want, and God struck them dead instantly. A couple thoughts on holiness for us to think about. Three things on holiness. Number one, God's holiness is other. God's holiness is other. You might say, well, what, what does that mean? doesn't really make sense. Well, the, the opposite of holy is common. The opposite of holy is common. And common, the word for common is profane. And so God is holy. We are common and profane. We are unholy. And so God's holiness is other than us. We can't, um, can't completely understand the holiness of God. And this is a problem because in, in, in the Beatitudes, Jesus says these words, which we can read over so quickly and just think there's such a sweet thing for Jesus to say. It would look beautiful on a placard on my wall over my toilet or on a coffee mug. But he says, he says this word, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Do you have a pure heart? 
Are you blessed with a pure heart? I mean, are, do you really have any hope of seeing God? I mean, can, can you, or, or are you like me and like the rest of God's fallen creation? We have impure hearts. We're unclean. We're sinful. And we have no heart, hope apart from God's grace. God is going to have to deal with not our eyes, but our heart for us to see God. If we're going to be able to see God, if we're going to be able to be in His presence, if we're able to be accepted, have a right relationship with God, He's going to have to purify our hearts for that to ever happen. How can that possibly happen? Understanding God's holiness is other than ours. God, we, we cannot begin to comprehend God's holiness. Wearsby said it this way. He said, no amount of freshly zeal or false fire can substitute for spirit-filled devotion to the Lord. Be sure that the fire of your heart, your ministry, your life, comes from God's altar and not from the world. Let me give you this thought to kind of put over the last couple moments. Again, in an age where of radical individualism, where we all have our own freedom to determine our way to God and our path to God, and we want to be you know, sincere in our own worship, and we even, we even regularly uh, lower the priority. We have, we have very little value often to the gathering of believers, and we come to gather when we want. We don't gather when we don't want, and we, when it's convenient or when it's not convenient or whatever, and there, our priorities are a little whacked out sometimes in life group and getting together and doing community with other Christians and there being ongoing fellowship with other, ah, we take it or leave it, whatever. We just, we're, we're so individualized because I, I can do whatever I want, and I'm freedom in Christ for me to get my own, figure out my own path, and I can chart my own way, and I can do things my own way. And the reality, in, in, in that kind of environment, with that kind of mentality of our society, and of many professing believers, or most professing believers, we have to understand that there is only one way to God. And it doesn't matter who your mom and your dad and your grandparents was. It doesn't matter if your father is Aaron the high priest. It doesn't get you any closer to God. It doesn't get you off the hook. You have to come to God with humility and repentance and faith and trusting in God having satisfied His wrath for sin and for your sin specifically on the cross. You have to come with humility in the presence of God. But if you arrogantly wander in the way you want, however you want, thinking that you're adding something of value to God, be careful lest you fall. Let him who stands be careful lest he falls. God, holy, His holiness is other than ours. God's holiness is also awesome. God's holiness is awesome. There's a, there's a Latin word, mysterium, Tremendum, which means the awesome mystery. God's holiness is awesome. And that word awesome, in fact, I wrongly used it even when I walked up here doing the greeting earlier. I said, awesome, good to see you guys today, whatever. And I just said it, just like that. And that's what we've done. We've taken just words that are just potent with meaning and, and um, with power, and we've diluted them just to like a flippant little, hey, awesome, what's up, guys? I'm doing awesome. What does awesome mean? Awesome is a scary word. I'll never forget being in Thailand, uh, Kaulak, Thailand. It's, it's north of Phuket on the Indian Ocean. You're going uh, north of Phuket. And this is the place, if you've ever seen the videos of um, the tsunamis that hit Thailand um, years ago, not that long ago, what, a decade, a little over, what, 15 years ago or so. The, the, the tsunamis that hit 
and there, there's some video footage up on a hill, and you see people walking out on the beach because the water has receded because it's being sucked up into these waves that are about to come with unbelievable force to kind of push in and just consume the town of Kalak and a whole bunch of Thailand and other um, island nations around that area, the Pacific Rim. And, and I'll never forget being there. And we, we were, I was on a mission trip there, and we were helping with victims of, um, that were trying to put their lives back together. And we were working with a ministry, some guys that had rebuilt a, a village, and they were working with orphans whose parents had been killed in the, um, from, as a result of the, the tsunamis. But driving in on that town and pausing and looking down and seeing the sight from that hill, and just imagine people up there with cameras looking at this beautiful day with their cameras, with their video, and then seeing the water receding, and they're filming it because it's just so interesting. And all these people wandering out into the now exposed sand because it's, they've never, this has never been, you know, the, the tide has never been that low. And so they're out there seeing all these different things they've not seen before, and they're exploring lots of tourists. And then in the distance, you see these couple military ships that are out there with one of the, the king's sons, of uh, Thailand was, was snorkeling, and one of the king's ships was out there, the military ships, and you see these ships get over, flipped over and overtaken by the waves coming in. Slowly this wave is pushing in. It seems like slow motion, and yet there's no way for them to warn the people on the beach to get back in time. There's no possible way for them to get down there to tell them. By the time the waves are there, there was no time. And every morning we had breakfast at this little um, tiki hut little place on the edge of this hotel that was just up from the beach. I mean, we could walk couple hundred yards down the little road and we're right there at the beach that the waves came in and swept that place was underwater years previous and we had breakfast there amazing fruit breakfast awesome every morning have a little time of worship there every morning pray together uh starting off the day every morning and i i it, it never ceased to sober me to sit there and just to think about what would i do if the waves were coming how what, what would be my exit route what would i do and there was this sense of awe that filled me every moment as i thought about the intensity of that moment and what would you do when waves were coming and would kill and destroy everything you see the sense of awe it's an awesome moment maybe a little less extreme i, I remember being in the cn tower in toronto which is the tallest freestanding structure in um, North America, and uh, if you're up in the CN Tower, there is a section of floor that is glass. So this super, super high, uh, you know, pod thing on the top of, of uh, this giant needle, little thing, you, on one of the parts of the floor, there's glass. And so you could actually step out onto the glass, seeing through all the way down to see little dots of people walking around below there. Now, I'm told that, they can, that that glass is so thick and solid that it could hold a couple hippos. Now, I never saw them test it, but that's what they say. And I'm going to tell you, it was a little, uh, I was awestruck trying to step out onto the glass and, just try, and you're just like, and I, I'm, as much as intellectually you understand that I'm all right, I'm fine, I'm on solid ground. The other people just took pictures standing on it, and they were fine. They have not plummeted to their death. So surely I can stand on it and not. But everything that are where our brain's wired, it just doesn't make sense to, to step out where you can see the ground in a place that you would plummet to your death easily. I, it would just was illogical. And I stood out there and I looked down and I'm telling you, my feet are getting, even talking about my feet are getting sweaty right now. My hands are getting sweaty. My heart rate's, pretty, I mean, it's intense. Maybe you've seen the video of that, that glass bridge in China that they've built. And they're like people dragging their dogs across it because the dogs are like, I'm not going on the bridge. 
I mean, there's people that are, their eyes are closed and friends are like bringing them and they're just freaking out. It's just, it is completely, it just, there's a disconnect there. How can I go out over, I cannot do that. And I want you to understand that is what, it gives us a glimpse of what it means to be in the awesome, uh, tr- tremendous, magnified glory of God. To be in the presence of holiness is for our, for our natural response is for us to hit the ground and grovel, hit the ground in, in, in fear and frightened John MacArthur was telling a story where he uh, was talking to this gentleman who said that uh, every morning he, Jesus appears to him and he has a face-to-face conversation with Jesus. And John MacArthur just, you know, he said, okay, all right, well, t- t- what, what are you doing? When, when, you, um, you know, when, when does he come to you? He's like, well, well every morning when I'm shaving, uh, or often many mornings when I'm shaving, um, Jesus appears and we, we have a conversation, we just talk. He says, well, what do you do when he appears? He says, I keep shaving. And he says, well, that's not Jesus. That's not Jesus. Every time Jesus appears, every time God appears, any time through the Old Testament and the New Testament, with the exception of when Jesus was on earth, during that time, he kind of, his glory, his power, his godness was kind of veiled for a temporary time. But on the Mount of Transfiguration, it was unveiled. And what happens? Again, anytime anybody's in, in the presence of Jesus with his unveiled glory, in the presence of God, unveiled glory they immediately fall to their faces before god isaiah ezekiel john and revelation one every time somebody's in the presence of god they fall to their faces it's the same thing as just stepping out on a glass bridge and then looking down you don't just go oh this is crazy this is really interesting no you just you will instinctively fall to your face and you'll be trying to grab stuff and go and trying to find something to hold you up because you're afraid you're about to die in that moment, there's a fear that naturally will come over you. And our natural response to God's holiness is awesome fear. God's holiness is awesome. But the la- last thing I want to note is God's holiness is healthy. It's healthy and healing. The word holy comes from an uh, Anglo-Saxon word, halig or hal, which means well and whole. It's kind of like we talked weeks ago, the peace offering, the, the God's peace offering, God's peace, the shalom of God is to bring wellness and wholeness to creation, God's creation, to restore it. And so here, when God responds like this to Nadab and Abihu, or when he responds like this to Uzzah, when the Ark of the Covenant is being transported, I don't know if you guys have ever seen this story or heard this story or read this story, but the Ark of the Covenant is being trans, transfer, uh, transferred and uh, stolen back from or taken freely from the Philistines who stole it from people of God and it was causing problems in their home and their God fell down in the middle of the night after they had the Ark of the Covenant there and they started getting tumors and other things and so they said you can have your box that represents your God back and so they sent it on an ox cart and it gets to nation of Israel to their territory and they're they're rolling along with it instead of putting it on poles like this as they were prescribed and commanded to do they just left it on the ox cart like the Philistines sent it to them Philistines not knowing the rules send it to him an ox cart. The Israelites, knowing the rules, left it on the ox cart, and it starts to tip, and the Ark of the Covenant starts to fall off of the wagon, and Uzzah puts his hand there to steady it, and instantly God strikes him dead. Why would God do that? Good night, God, what are you doing? Because 
He is assuming wrongly that his hand trying to help God is pure enough to touch the thing that represents the presence of God and that it would be more defiling than the dirt of the ground that obeys God. When it rains, it turns to mud. When it's sunny, it turns to dirt. It does what God commands it to do, but he, with a sinful heart, does what he wants and thinks that he can add to help and God needs his assistance. God strikes him dead because of his pride in that moment. What's going on? God hates sin with the visceral hate that a mother hates cancer in her child. When God sees the lack of holiness and uncleanness is the same way that a mom or a father would see disease that is ravaging and threatening to steal the life and the health and the vitality and the future of their child? Would they look at that and just go, oh, it's not really a big deal. I mean, it's just, I mean, you know, eats their own. I used cancer. Somebody doesn't have cancer. Eh, whatever, whatever their path is, it doesn't really matter. No, no, they would pray and beg God to heal them. They will traverse oceans and seas and mountains and chasms and whatever they have to do to find some remedy to heal their child. If there's something they can do to make health and wholeness and restoration come to them, they'll do whatever they can, but they will not tolerate the impurity and the disease that's destroying their beautiful, perfect child. And in the same way, God looks at unholiness that runs rampant in society, and he does not laugh. He doesn't think it's funny. He doesn't think it's cute. He doesn't think that it's just people just each just being their own. They're just doing their thing. They're just expressing. They're just trying to find themselves. It's not funny. It's unhealthy. It's destructive. It is disease running through his creation. He takes it real seriously. He judges holiness. So understand the holiness of God is God's holiness is other. It is awesome and it is, but it's healthy and it's healing. And so we need to respond in repentance and faith and humility to God's response. First Peter chapter two, verse five close with this says you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a royal priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to god through jesus christ here's the question for the day how can we who have impure hearts see god and have right worship to god answer you need a new heart you need a new heart. You, you need to repent of your sin. We need to take God's holiness really seriously. We cannot act like it doesn't matter. And God is not looking for our external obedience like Aaron going through the rituals. God does not appreciate that. And yet he respects and shows grace to Aaron's sincerity and honesty when he's saying, God, I, I just can. I, I'm broken before you right now because of what's happened to my sons and what's happened to my family. And I'm I'm grieving from that standpoint. And I. I I'm not going through the rituals. I'm too broken. It's the humility and the brokenness that God goes, hey, that's good. I like that. Go back to the Beatitudes. Before blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God comes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. You want to see God? You need to be poor in spirit. Then you get the kingdom of God. You need to mourn, have an accurate perspective of who you really are and your need for God's grace, and then you can be comforted. Then you need to have a pure heart. You need God to remove the bad one and to give you a good one. That happens through repentance and faith. There's a real hell, and God has real judgment, and God is completely justified in judging sin. And it's the only thing a holy God can do that's right when 
disease has ravaged his beautiful creation. In his process of restoring it, he has sent a rescuer to die for your sins that you could have faith in him and he wants to restore your life. So repent and trust in Christ. 